What is going on, everybody? John Stanek from Johnny Radio here, bringing you another episode of the So You Think You Know podcast, where I talk to musicians, artists, and all sorts of interesting people. And this is no exception, guys. He is a park ranger, an environmental educator, adventurer, world traveler, filmmaker, writer, storyteller, the list goes on and on. And I have the honor of saying he's one of my very best friends, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mark Mahan. So tell me everything from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But seriously, man, we've known each other for like 25 years now, I think it is. Is that correct? That's That sounds right. Yep. Met in Campbell High School. You were I believe in your senior year, I was in my junior year, yep. some kind of social studies class. And uh, the first impression I had of you was with your long hair and the way you talked slowly. And, you know, you're always talking about making movies. I just assumed you were uh, some sort of drug addict. Yeah, yeah, that, I was an odd one. And your first impression of me was probably confirmed as soon as you watched one of my short films. They contained blood spurting stuffed animals, reanimated zombie meat, cross-dressing strip teases, and any number of things that only a drug-addled mind could have come up with. <laughs> and yet, I've been a lifelong teetotaler and have never done drugs of any kind. Amazing. Yeah, that's true. And uh, yeah, that movie, by the way, was Naked Monkeys, which... Um, was amazing even back then like i didn't realize that you know you had ripped off some tarantino stuff at the time oh like yeah the reservoir right. dogs scene but because i hadn't even seen that movie but still like there was enough of your insane personality that came through as well that made me love it so um but yeah i've always admired that about you that you've been totally sober all these years. Uh, but why is that? Uh, I don't know. There a few reasons. I've never subscribed to the notion that an artist needs alcohol to become uninhibited, to you know, open up the mind, to let loose, be creative. Sure, yeah. No, I get that. Yeah, I remember actually Brian and, uh, and us, we went to a karaoke bar back in the day. And that's when he and I, I think we had, were maybe like 22 or something. So of course we got some beers uh, to fit in with the crowd, but you did not. And yet you went up to sing a Bee Gees tune. Wh which one was it? Was it How I'll, Deep I'll, Is Your Love? Yeah, how Deep Is Your Love, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember Brian and I laughing so loud because you were doing... But it wasn't just like that you were doing the high voice of Barry Gibb. It was like... I was doing it badly. No, no, no. <laughs> no, it was actually not bad. It was just like you were standing there like expressionless as you did it, which made it that much funnier. And I remember this guy leaned over and he's like, what did he have to drink? And we were like, uh, nothing. That's what makes this even greater. <laughs> exactly. That That's me in a nutshell. Singing with reckless abandon, all the while being stone cold sober. Yeah. Um, and so it's also that I'm a control freak. I would never want control substances to control me. 
um, that doesn't sound like fun. In fact, it sounds miserable. Even back in the day when I was in high school and friends would be drinking and doing other types of drugs, they would look at me and say, don't be trapped in by old concepts, man. Evolve into a new life form. <laughs> I, I just never yeah. broke down under peer pressure. Right. In fact, I always felt like my friends had turned into the pod people from like the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I was the main character clinging to humanity, resisting change. And the other bit is that I have an addictive personality. I know that about myself. Um, whenever there's something that I discover that I like just love, I really, you know, don't just dip my toe into it. I dive headlong into it and I never come up from air. I, I become obsessed and fanatical and to my friends and family, insufferable. I just won't shut up about it. Right, right. Um, and, and this is even about things that like I love, like films and books and Star Wars, Star Trek, Oatmeal, being a vegan, national parks. Can you imagine if I were to try alcohol and drugs and liked it? That wouldn't end well because I'm a completist. I it wouldn't be enough to drink one thing. I would have to drink and sample everything. Um, right. I can't do anything in moderation. It's all or nothing. Yeah, you being a completist, that's that's a, an interesting side of you that, you know, following you on Letterboxd and and these other things, seeing everything that you watch, like you watch everything by your favorite directors, like even the bad movies, right. even the ones that you, you know you should probably <laughs> avoid because they're not sure. good. Um, and that, I appreciate that, but at the same time, I could never do that. And But like you've got these rules like with movies, you don't watch previews. And the one that gets me like where I get frustrated sometimes <laughs> is you don't listen to singles by new music artists because you want to wait for the album. Case in point, recently Coldplay, you probably still have not heard their, uh, their new single. So, but I, I want to talk to you about it, but then of course, you know, I, I got to be patient. So, but do you find that these parameters and rules that you've set, that gives you more joy in appreciating art? Oh, oh, definitely. Like, I, I just want to experience what an artist has created as a whole. I'm not interested how the marketing department chooses to sell bite-sized products. My appetite does not need to be whetted. If there's a musician or a filmmaker that I follow, I'll be there no matter what, no matter how long it takes. Even if it takes some years, I'll wait so I can enjoy the entire meal. I want to be surprised. Makes sense. Yeah. I get that. Being a completist, having that patience and discipline, wh where did those traits come from? Was that from childhood or did that develop later? I really always remember being like this. Even as a kid, I had to have every GI Joe garbage pill kid. Um, yeah, I, that, that was me. I, I pr probably have to credit it to my parents. Um, for that type of fanaticism. Um, my dad had a vast record collection and then a CD collection, which he cataloged and kept track of all that he needed and all that he had. My mom ran a business out of the home making cakes. She worked round the clock, never turning down an order. My parents Great never cakes, did. cakes, by the way, man. The you best. bet. Yeah. 
Um, my parents never did anything casually. Um, every Saturday was spent going shopping from thrift stores to department stores to state sales. And of course, they dragged me along with them. And I'd always ask, what are you shopping for? And they'd respond, nothing in particular. It's the thrill of the hunt. You never know what you'll find. And I don't like shopping to this day, but I do apply the thrill of the hunt to pretty much every aspect of my life. I'm a seeker. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm a voracious reader. I read about 100 books a year, of which most are nonfiction books comprising a variety of subjects. And I'm also a cinephile. I watch one film a day, as you mentioned. Um, do, and do I like everything that I read and watch? Hardly. But when I find something that speaks to me, oh boy, it makes the discovery all the sweeter. And that spurs me to find the next amazing thing. Yeah. Your dad's record collection, do you remember like what the first record from that or from his music collection that uh, you were turned on to? Yeah, it like it would have to be the Beatles. Um, my dad was always playing music um, and it was kind of like those uh, commercials with, um, you know, about say no to drugs where the dad finds um, drug <laughs> in, in the son's yeah. room and, and, and asks the son, where did you, where did you learn to do this? And the kid says, I learned it from you, dad. I learned it from watching you. So I just grew up hearing all this music all the time. And um, I'd be singing a song and my dad would say, where'd you hear that? I was like, dad, I learned it from you. You were playing the song. Yeah. And, and I think I always, um, I was always drawn to the Beatles yeah. And that's cool because you kind of, in a way, passed the Beatles torch on to me. Uh, of course, I am now a Beatles fanatic myself. But at the time that we met, uh, of course, my mom was really into them, had most of their records. But it, it wasn't until you like introduced them to me properly because you told me I need to start with Abbey Road and listen to the whole thing front to back. And, and I did that and I was just like astounded because, you know, I just knew mostly the hits at that point. And it was such a work of art that I just went backwards from there, basically uh, rediscovering them all over again. And it's been a great journey. So thank yeah. you for that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And for me, the Beatles were just always in the atmosphere. I, mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you the first time I listened to like, I, I wish I had that experience that you had where you're like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. What is this? Yeah. You know, there's the, it seems like there's so many, uh, YouTubers these days that are just like people that are listening to things for the first time and they get millions of views. Cause it, it is so fun to right. see someone experiencing something special for the first time. But, um, what about movies? What was, uh, what was the movie that made a big impression on you? Well, it wasn't just a movie. I, I remember specifically two movies. Um, at the tender age of three, I saw them. Um, the, and the first one was The Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. The second, The Elephant Man. Oh, wow. Yeah, these, and these two films couldn't be any more different. One is colorful, um, is a rip-roaring adventure, and the other is a stark black-and-white tragedy on the human condition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I figured my parents took me to it thinking I'd probably fall asleep in the first few minutes, but it, yeah, that's it pretty intense for a three-year-old man. <laughs> exactly. But ever since um, I've enjoyed mainstream and art house films equally. So it kind of like set the stage. Like I knew from the get go that, um, you know, there was more to movies than just, uh, you know, Woody Woodpecker and Bugs Bunny running around. Like I knew that there was something big and grand that could be done with films. Yeah, definitely. And obviously, you know, I share your love for Empire Strikes Back for sure. And you even did a shot for shot remake of one of the scenes in your uh, Wicked movie, your uh, short film years ago, which is still one of my favorites, but so cool how you did that. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, do you've always had a passion for creating? Would you say that's where it started or, or what made you realize that you could create something? Hmm. Yeah. So let's see. My first memories were watching movies at a young kid, but I just, it didn't occur to me as most three-year-olds that you could make a movie. Um, but around the age of six, um, I had already started reading. Uh, my mom got me started reading pretty early but my, uh, I remember my first grade teacher noticed that I had a speech impediment and set me up to have like a speech therapist kind of lose my, my impediment. And one of the ways we did that was she would give me my trouble words. I had trouble enunciating the word R. And so she would give me all these words with R's in them. And she would have me pick these words at random and, but somehow make a story out of it, make a, a cohesive story. And she would write down whatever I was telling her. And in front of my very eyes, I saw a story take form. Not only was it a, a story that kind of made sense, but it also made me laugh. And I was like, whoa, 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 I created that. And as soon as that happened, I was off to the races. I was writing short little stories about me and my friends. And, um, and so naturally years later, when I found a video camera, it was only natural that I start making movies of my own. Yeah. That's so cool. And that, that's essentially how we connected. I, as a kid, I wrote stories also and made, you know, little videos with my cousins when I was a kid. So when I saw what you were doing, which I thought was at a much higher level, uh, even though it was the Naked Monkeys movie that I referenced earlier, uh, I was very interested in, you know, being a part of that. And uh, at the end of that school year, I remember we exchanged numbers and uh, I think I was like, yeah, give me a call if, you're, if you ever need somebody. Yeah, and I never called you back. In fact, I hadn't held much stock in your interest. People are always saying, oh, well, let's get together after graduating, but they never do. Um, but, but I remember you calling me up the very day before we were to set to begin filming Two Good Eyes. And you told me how you'd gone to New Jersey for two months and was wondering if we were filming anything. And I said, as a matter of fact, um, there's something we're starting tomorrow. I was going to play the character myself, but I would much rather be behind the camera. You excitedly took the part and the rest is history. Imagine John, how different our lives would be if you hadn't kept your word and called me. Like you became my go-to actor, the person I put in harm's way. 
like like i i'm just curious like <laughs> like the whole time you're in jersey just jonesing to call me back or like how, how did you even remember because honestly you know when you're 18 20 two months feels like two years so yeah that's true um i do remember like showing my dad naked monkeys and some of your other stuff oh, that no. you had made and <laughs> and as a matter i i remember him also being somewhat impressed even though he was I like thought, what's with this guy like i thought you were saying i, I thought he was gonna say um he was very concerned <laughs> yeah yeah i think he is concerned to this day <laughs> but yeah. uh but no i so yeah i it, it kind of just stayed in my mind and then when i got back it was kind of like there wasn't a lot going on and and i was kind of new to georgia so I, you know i had some friends but mostly new friends you know so um which you were one of them so but yeah two good eyes man that's uh yeah that that set off um some crazy adventures on um, both on film and off film for sure yeah i remember uh man we spent so much time in that creek like <laughs> sometimes waste level i thought it was going to be like the leeches scene and stand by me at one point yeah. But yeah. um but yeah, there were all kind of crazy things. I, I don't remember really being in harm's way that much. Um oh, I, I have one specific idea, and it's probably because you were just blind to it. Um it's one of those things that I look back now and cringe. <laughs> um there there is now in Smyrna the Comet Trail, Silver Comet Trail, where they converted an old railroad um track into a Greenway tra um, trail. But when we were filming on it, um, it was still an old abandoned railroad track. And at some point, the railroad went over a trestle and it visually looks amazing. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to film a scene up there? And this trestle, I'm, we're talking, it's like 100 feet off the ground. And the scene had you running down the trestle and it's about the width of you know a bike lane. And uh, if you had stumbled or tripped, you could easily go and ride over that trestle because, again, there was no safety rails. And uh, I look back at that and think, oh, my God, what if John had fallen to his death? I would have had to burden that the rest of my life. I killed my friend making a silly movie. What was that um, for? Was that for Crooked Deck? I yeah. don't even remember that. Corner Pocket is Corner Pocket. It's when uh, the Space Goblin is chasing you and you run out. Because not only do you run out on the trestle, but um, I use film trickery to make it look like you jumped off the trestle. Oh, right. Yes. And so when you, when you quote, jump off the trestle, I had you jump down out of frame mm -hmm. and I pan over in that little move, either you or I could have gone over the trestle easily. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. I don't remember it seeming that dangerous at the time, but. I, I remember it being dangerous, but I plowed ahead because <laughs> yeah. I, I was young and thought well nothing too bad could happen to us yeah yeah i was up for anything man i remember you really were walking down the street in my boxer shorts uh in public in marietta yep. square yeah. and and i re remember just being very like yeah no problem like i don't know if uh <laughs> that was just the beginning of uh exhibitionism i know i remember you did some uh kind of nude scenes of your own at one point oh yes 
<laughs> but you were not uh, in public at that time. No, really. I was not. I was um, in my crawl space underneath my house, um, which it pretty much looks like every crawl space in a horror film. Yeah. Um, like, don't go down there and definitely don't go down there naked. Yeah. You're just setting yourself up for trouble. <laughs> I think um, we watched too many episodes of Jackass around that time. We were really into oh, that show. Remember? Definitely. Definitely. We, we were inspired. We were young. We had no fear. Yeah. Um, all terrible, terrible combinations. <laughs> um, Did you know they're coming out with a Jackass 4 soon? I do. Jackass forever. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's going to be just more of the same stuff, but I mean, what else could they do at this point? Hmm. They're so old now. Yeah. They're going to yeah. easily really break a bone this time. Yeah. Seriously. Hip. Man. Craziness. But yeah, we never got that crazy. So, uh, no, no, we did not. Uh, ours was pretty tame in comparison. Yes. But yeah, I, I always assumed ju- just not just based on your passion for it, but also how good you were at it and, and also how good you were at selling it to a guy like me, like I remember you, when you told me about the crooked deck, for example, you acted out like the entire script and showed it to me. And just, it was so exciting that I was like, yeah, sign me in, man. But, um, but yeah, I just assumed you would have done that for the rest of your life, but uh, not the case. So, so what happened there? Hmm. It's a um, torturous story. Um, I, so I was making short films on video back in the nineties when all the film festivals would only accept entries on film. Yeah. Film and video festivals were rare. I, I did get into a few. Uh, my claim to fame is winning top prize at Dragon Con's first film festival in 1999. Yeah. Yep. But beyond that, it was really hard to get film seen. The internet was in its infancy. There was no YouTube, which is a shame because our short little odd films were tailor-made for YouTube. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, if, if YouTube had existed earlier, I mean, do you think we would have been prepared for success had we had it? Nope, I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, the, the key was I lacked business sense. I was full of ideas and passion, but none of them involved how to profit from filmmaking. Filmmakers that I love, like the Coen brothers, they tailor-made their first film to um, be sold to a burgeoning video market eager to distribute suspense thrillers. They waited to make their truly bizarre stuff once they were established. Other than underground avant-garde film festivals, no one was interested in what I was making. I guess I could say I was ahead of my time, I wanted to make films that buck the traditional Hollywood fare, and I reveled in blazing my own trails. No film school for me, no sir, no way, no how. I wanted to learn by doing everything myself, but that's really hard, and I burned myself out. In hindsight, I wish I had gone to film school. I would have been a part of a community of like-minded individuals. I would have had help, and in turn, I would have helped others with their student films. And I may have learned that I enjoyed being an editor or a cinematographer better than being a director. Sure. Yeah. Endless possibilities. And I mean, connections really are almost everything. And in, in, 
in most fields, really, when you really get down to it, but especially in the movie world. I mean, my God. Yeah. And, oh, my goodness. Like when we were making films back in the mid 90s, no one was thinking about filming anything in Atlanta. And so the industry was so far and removed from our reality. Like we really felt like we were in a bubble all by ourselves. If the filmmaking like that's happening today in Atlanta was happening back in the 90s, oh my goodness, how different my life would have been. I would have worn my way into some production to be a lowly production assistant and just, yeah. you know, learn from the real thing. Right, right. And, and so like, I'm kind of envious of what's happening in Atlanta right now. I'm like, why was this not happening 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah. I had to even like, just because there's, there's always so much going on, I had to weasel my way into being an extra a couple years ago in a game night. And you'll, you'll see my face for like literally half a second if you freeze frame it uh, in the opening wedding scene. But it was just so fun to be on a set, like a real set, and, you know, just see the joy of filmmaking again. Indeed. It had been a while. So do you think you'll ever uh, return to it? I seriously doubt it. Um, I'm a perfectionist. I used to think that was something to be proud of, but as I've gotten older, I realized that being a perfectionist is a hindrance. If I couldn't make it, my film look like it did in my head, I'd get frustrated and give up. Several years ago, I went through my footage that I had shot from my filmmaking days. And what was revealing was that I started more films than I ever finished, but worse, some of the abandoned films were actually pretty good um, and actually better than some of the ones I did finish. I had the benefit of being 20 years removed from the creative process. I could actually see them as a viewer would. I wish I could just tell my younger self to just finish the blasted thing and let the world decide whether it's good or not. Having said that, I've been working on the same novel since 2001. If I had been a film director, I would have been like George Lucas tinkering on the same film for 40 years, and nobody likes that. I've learned to channel my passion for telling stories in other directions. If you had told me when I was in high school that I would one day be a teacher, I would have told you you're crazy. And yet, that's what I am now, an environmental educator. Yeah, a park ranger, uh, Joshua Tree National Park, such a a cool place to be one on top of it. Um, how did you make that transition? Well, after my stint in filmmaking, I started my own video business, filming weddings, corporate training videos, all in an attempt to recoup my money spent on short films. And of course I hated the work. I got no joy from capturing the precious moments of star-crossed lovers on their wedding day and remember how I said I had no business sense? Well, I would only take enough work to pay the bills. When I was editing a creatively dull film, I'd look out the window, see the sun streaming through the trees, hear the birds chirping, and i think, I want to be outside, soaking up nature. So every chance I got, I was visiting the local parks. At some point, I took a major road trip visiting Grand Canyon and Glacier National Park. When I encountered a park ranger my age, a light bulb went off over my head. I thought, he gets to call the mountains and the trees his office, and he gets to tell tourists about 
the park's amazing natural resources, I realized at that point that I had made a wrong career move, that a career was possible that merged my passion for the environment with my skills as a storyteller. I quit my business, went to college for the first time at the age of 30, and you actually played a part in inspiring me to do that. Watching you go back and get a degree, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. It's never too late to change careers. That's awesome, man. Yeah, that's... Uh... I, I forget that I actually had any part in that, but I mean, of course, my career isn't really as exciting being an accountant, but, you know, it was uh, definitely good for uh, getting things done, getting uh, moving on with life. And, um, you know, I had to, similar to you, say goodbye to a music career that I was kind of clutching onto and thinking I could make it. And it was looking back on it, unrealistic for a lot of reasons. A lot of the same reasons you talk about as well, like me wanting to do it on my own and not really always wanting advice from other people when I should have taken it, those kind of things. But, um, but yeah, that's awesome that um, we kind of spurred each other on to uh, this new, this next part of our lives. Indeed. So speaking of, of all that, you and Amelia quit your jobs several years ago to join the Peace Corps and serve in Malawi in Africa. And obviously you're changed by that experience, but you particularly seem like, I remember when you came back and were telling us about it, you seemed like really, really changed. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, I feel like we've always had an adventurous spirit. We've traveled all over the country, visiting national parks, visiting New Zealand and Europe. We'd actually looked into Peace Corps much earlier, um, but at the time I didn't have a degree and I had zero volunteering experience. At the time, Amelia's parents were working as missionaries in Morocco, North Africa. They alone were doing the work of like 20 people. We thought they could use the help and we could get the volunteering experience. So we spent a year in Morocco. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, and I, I remember the the videos that you took there and how cool it was that you became part of that that community and everything, the, the music, uh, the people seemed so cool. Uh, I just, I love you and Amelia's ability to get up and go, you know, whether it's Peace Corps, Morocco, or in the States, you know, moving to North Carolina, to California, I see it as having kind of a strong faith. Um, do you see it that way? Or is it more like a balancing act of your adventurous spirit mixed with your analytical reasoning? I don't know. Uh, maybe all the above. It goes back to me being a seeker, a lifelong learner. Most people never leave their own neighborhood or even their own country. They justify this by thinking that their way of life is the best, that their country is the best, that their religion is the best. This is very short-sighted and egotistical, in my opinion. I encourage everyone to travel to developing countries, to immerse yourself in another culture and another religion. You may be surprised by what you discover. When I was in Morocco, I witnessed the Browns helping migrants and refugees from Sub-Saharan Africa. These brave individuals left their home due to war, famine, economic ruin, hoping to find a better life in Europe. 
oftentimes entire villagers pooled their money just so one person could travel forth to make money to send back to their family. But they'd make it to Morocco only to find out that the narrow passage into Europe is blocked by a big freaking wall. This is where the Browns would step in. They help with food, medicine, rent, business startups. As missionaries, they could have chosen to provide these things only to people who gave their life to Christ, but that's not what they did. They studied Islam, learned Arabic, became friends with Muslims, and shared their Christian faith in exchange. Basically, they treated everyone like a fellow human being. They were accepting of other people's faith. This had an impact on me. They also taught me about their belief that migration was a basic human right. At the time, I remember telling people when I got back um, from that trip, imagine there's a presidential election. One party wins and proceeds to not only assassinate the other party, the losing party, but also kills citizens who voted for that losing party. Or imagine that your source of water is gone and your crops are drying up. That's why people are leaving their home countries, countries that they love. Now, unfortunately, it's easier for Americans to realize that we're not that far away from those kinds of things. And speaking of which, you may remember why we had to leave Peace Corps back in 2017. There was an outbreak of vampires. Not really, but there was a rash of violent attacks stoked by That's an irrational, right. yeah. yeah, like stoked by an irrational fear of others. People were making up lies, saying that their enemies broke into their houses while they slept, stealing their blood and drinking their blood in the belief that it would make them powerful. Keep in <laughs> mind, yeah, that the people making up these lies didn't believe in vampires. They just hoped that the masses would believe it in order to justify their their agendas. And when the president of Malawi could have quelled the fear of the masses, he didn't. Instead, he spoke like a true politician, eager to placate both sides by saying, if vampires exist, we will find them and deal with them. And of course, naturally, that's when things only got worse and Peace Corps did not hesitate to pull us out. Right, right. And like I remember, like you and all my other friends and family in America thinking probably how dumb Malawians must be to believe in vampires. But doesn't this all sound too familiar now? QAnon, the conspiracy with Kung Flu, anti-vaxxers. Yeah, now them, you know, saying that uh, whatever Biden drinks the blood of children and oh yeah, know, Clinton. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness, they, it literally is the same script. Right. Yeah. 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 It's uh, dark times, man. <laughs> what can Indeed. you say? Indeed. And yet, I have hope. When I was in Peace Corps, they told us that we didn't need to burn ourselves out by helping everyone with everything. Simply find one person, teach them the things that you're passionate about, inspire them to teach the next person, and so on and so on, like a ripple on a pond. I met that kindred spirit, a Malawian named Billy Mpande. He owned an eco safari camp next to a national park just down the road from me. This is unheard of. Most safari camps are owned by white Europeans. They keep all the money from themselves that they make through tourism. Um, but Billy, however, he invested that money back into the community by providing jobs for fellow Malawians, promoting other Malawian businesses. He was also motivated to teach his fellow Malawians to protect the environment. 
Um, certain Malawians were upset that the national park didn't allow poachers to kill animals. They would say, the money I make from selling ivory can feed my family for months. I would say, that's true. But once the last elephant is killed, you'll have no other way to make money. A more sustainable option would be to invest in tourism. Visitors like me will travel thousands of miles just to come here and see your elephants. While we're here, we spend money on hotels, taxis, restaurants, guides, and souvenirs. If there are no more elephants, there'll be no more tourists bringing money to your businesses. These and more were the lessons that Billy and I taught. When I learned that the children of my village had never seen an elephant in their entire lives, I made it my vow. I'm gonna take every last kid who wants to see these elephants and hippos. And so that's exactly what we did. That's awesome. I love this story. Yeah. And realized very quickly that I probably <laughs> made too big of a promise because um, there are about 200 kids in my village and they all wanted to go at once. And so I said, well, no, 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 you can't, we can't do that. <laughs> so I yeah. broke it up into like um, groups of 20. I said, okay, you 20 will go today, the next 20. And so the first day we walked, um, starting with our 20, I made the mistake of um, leading the charge. And so I was not a paying attention to the back of the line that continued to grow and grow and grow and grow. And by the time we got to the park, 20 had become 75. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> what, do, what, what do we do? Billy says, they have made the trip. They're here. Let us invite them in. And um, I love it. Yeah. I tried to tell the kids, you know, we can't predict what the animals are going to do. If we're lucky, we may see signs of animals. But in my mind, I was like, please be, please, please be, please be, let there be elephants. And uh, I was trying to, trying to tell the kids to be quiet because animals um, get scared away by our noise. And after like 20 minutes of nothing, and I was just about to give up, the grasses part, the elephants walk through a whole herd of them. And you could hear a pin drop. All the kids got so quiet. And they just sat there in amazement for like 30 minutes, just watching the elephants go. And after a while, the elephants returned back into the tall grasses and disappeared. At that point, the kids didn't want to leave. They're like, they might come back. I was like, no, we got to get going. The sun's going down. Yeah. But um, so of course the word spread overnight. And then, yeah, not only did I take all the kids in my village, but the kids in the surrounding village um, heard the stories. And so I had to take them. And then um, the parents wanted to go. Um, and so that was really a jumping off point for um, what we were there to teach. Um, like Billy and I, we were able to teach people how to basically live more sustainably, um, how to compost, how to grow food year round. Um, and what's more amazing is when I got there, Billy was kind of seen as an outsider by the community. They, they thought, who is this Malawian who owns a safari camp? But by the end, people would smile and wave and shout Billy's name whenever they saw him. It's, it's really a thing of beauty. Yeah, that's so cool. And you, you still keep in touch with the guy to this day, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I try to call him at least once a, once a month just to catch up. When I went to Peace Corps, I was really thinking that I would be cut off from society, um, which is a good thing because I went in right as the 2016 elections were going were taking place. And I was like, great, I don't need to hear that because it was already looking pretty um, dire. 
Right. Um, and, uh, and so, but it turns out Billy was just as informative of the States as the next person here. And so I actually realized I had to stay on top of my politics so I could keep up with Billy and have conversations about America. And, um, it was also just a special time. Um, and so I, I don't want to lose that, um, connection with the, um, with the friends like Billy that I made with the mm -hmm. country itself. I just really cherished my time there. It was just a, just a beautiful place. Um, just to be able to, like I said, immerse yourself in another culture, um, and just to live how other people, it makes you appreciative of what you have here. Yeah. Um, and to make a joke, uh, every day that I take a shower, <laughs> I weep because, um, I never had running water the entire time I was in Malawi. It's, yeah. it's like people just, they turn it on. They like zone out the water runs for 20 minutes. Like they don't stop and take in how precious it is without uh, running water. No, man. Yeah. I, I've only been, you know, on one short mission trip to Guatemala. And I, I remember uh, weeping in the moment when we were in this village, realizing that they didn't have their own water and they were like literally going to where it had recently rained and like collecting water in these clay pots and carrying back to their village. And it just made me realize like, Oh my God, man, we are just, we're so spoiled. It's ridiculous. Indeed. Indeed. And so I would always say that Malawians were cash poor, but they were rich in starlight. Mm -hmm. And um, the story is the first two months were in Peace Corps were staying with the host family. And at the end of the first day, it's time to brush my teeth. Brushing teeth is very important. If you're true to your teeth, they won't be false to you. Pause for laughter. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I asked, I asked, um, uh, yeah, dad joke, I'm getting old now. Um, but I asked my host uh, father, I said, where, do, where can I brush my teeth? He says, oh, just go out in the front yard, brush your teeth. So Amelia and I, we gather up our toothbrush or toothpaste. We walk outside we immediately stop in our tracks overhead was the night sky filled with more stars than I've ever seen before. And my host family, my host father looked at me and he said, well, what's the problem? I go, the stars, there's so many stars in this night sky. And he asked, do you not have stars in America? And I'm like, well, we do, but we have this thing called light pollution where you can't really see that many stars and he just couldn't fathom it. But the entire yeah. time I was in Malawi every night, I made a point to go out and just spend some quality time looking into the night sky. I mean, it's the darkest night skies I've ever seen mm -hmm. to the point that I actually made a promise to myself that when I came back to the States, I would live somewhere that had a true, truly dark night sky. And so knowing that I wanted to be a park ranger, I looked at, national parks that were also designated dark sky parks. And so that's actually what brought me to Joshua tree. That's what was not the U2 album. It was not the U2 <laughs> album. No. Um, I mean, that was a part of it. Um, sure. Yeah. That's so, a bonus. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I get back to the States. I become a park ranger at Joshua tree and the work that I had started as a Peace Corps volunteer I wanted to carry on as a park ranger. I wanted to leave the world a better place than I found it. And I realized 
that's impossible to do, you know, to protect the entire world. It's just too big. And I'm just an insignificant speck. But the idea of being a park ranger is that I can protect my little corner of the world. And I do this by telling stories that inspire and motivate positive change. One president can protect a million acres of land. Another president can choose to drill it. I tell visitors to find those politicians who will fight to save our planet and vote. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah, man. That's, uh, that's awesome, man. And I, I mean, I remember not to go back to, uh, the movies that you made, but I remember, you know, part of the Genesis, I guess a, a light bulb just went off for me that scene in the crooked deck where, uh, it seemed like an out of nowhere thing where, you know, this person littered out of their car window and uh, my character gets revenge <laughs> by, <laughs> by of course, uh, poisoning them with their own uh, fumes of their Toxic car. fumes, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I guess, you know, you've always had that passion for the planet in a good way, um, not getting the revenge of poisoning people, but... Um, you know, doing the things that you can do, yeah. doing all you can do as, as a human being. And uh, that's awesome, man. I'm proud of you, Mark Ranger. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, I, it's, it's interesting. Like, like I said, if you had asked me when I was a um, you know, kid, are you going to be a teacher one day? I would say no, no way in hell. But it's little baby steps all along the way. Everything kind of makes sense. Because even like you mentioned, the movies that I made, like for the most part, they took place outside in nature. Like back in the day when, um, you know, independent films were all the rage, a lot of them took place in coffee shops and mm -hmm. um, in the cities and mine were always more nature-based. Um, and like one short film that I made, I specifically made it in a landscape that I knew was about to be turned into a housing development. And I wanted to capture it before it all got plowed under. And yeah. all the trees got cut down. Like I'm right. like, it's important to me for to capture this on on video. Right. I remember that. Yeah. So cool. So aside from Malawi, I mean, you've got to travel to some other amazing places. Um, what's your favorite place or trip uh, other than Africa? It probably is New Zealand. Um, it's just heaven on earth. It has every type of landscape imaginable in this tiny little um, collection of um, two islands, uh, the mountains, the beach, alpine snow mountains, um, the, the, the hobbits, rain, the, the hobbits. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it just has a little bit of everything. And, um, but then the people are also amazingly um, nice, nicest people I've probably ever encountered. Um, I remember going into a, a local store and uh, the door opened, the bell dinged and the person walking in said, good morning, shopkeeper. <laughs> and they just had this conversation back and forth. I'm like, where am I? It was, it's really out, um, outside of time. I loved it. And, and also it was really the first trip I went on that I actually really planned out an itinerary. Like I'm going to be here on this day. We're going to do these activities. That was not always the case. I used to kind of just fly by the seat of my pants, but a certain 
um, trip with you changed all of that. I knew you were going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we learned the hard way what not to do. Uh, yeah. yeah, my God, man, where to even start? So we went to England and Scotland in uh, yeah. fall of 2000, and <laughs> we were going to stay with a friend of a friend of a friend that I met once when she visited the States and we kept an email contact and I was like, yeah, we're going to come. And then as it was getting closer, email contact kind of stopped. And, uh, and meanwhile, I thought that you two were tight and you had just had a conversation the morning before (laughs) we left and we're sitting at the airport waiting for the board, the plane and I say, so she's going to meet us um, at the airport. And you just had this blank look on your, your, your face. And I was like, she knows we're coming, right? <laughs> like she, you're like, I haven't talked to her in weeks or months. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, like the last thing I sent was our itinerary. And that probably scared her off. And probably. Then, yeah. You know. And so, and so, yeah, we had nowhere to stay. And I was like, oh, oh, no. But in... It actually, I think, worked out all right. Um, somehow we had um, angels looking out for us, I guess, because we always had a place to stay every night. But yeah, we, we really did get lucky day because if we had home base, we could have only gone so far every day. So we got really far north into, into Scotland. Yeah, all the way to Inverness, man, which was uh, maybe my favorite part of the trip. I mean, of course, Liverpool was great and... Um, <laughs> But let's not forget why we were going to England in the first place. Yes. To see Radiohead. So Radiohead had just come out with Kid A. They were not going to do a North American tour. And so we said, well, let's go to them. And so we were going to Warrington to see Radiohead. The last, the, the other nine days we had nothing planned. And so we get to Warrington with all our luggage because we have nowhere to store it. And not God. surprisingly, they would not allow us bring all the luggage in <laughs> yeah it was uh it was a nightmare scenario where uh oh my god we we were banging on doors of places like just please let us stay the night but everything was booked up because it was freaking radiohead you know in the middle of nowhere exactly and you're telling me let's just throw our our luggage in a bush and go into the concert <laughs> and it's like I have a $2,000 video camera that they will not let me in. I'm not going to throw it into a bush. Someone's going to see me throw it into the bush and go immediately immediately grab it as soon as we're out of there. Yeah. Um, So then it gets worse. So then we sell our our tickets. uh, To a scalper for like nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And then these two guys uh, see us doing this with our stupid luggage and start following us around saying, uh, we're not going to leave you alone, you know, or I can't do any accent, but uh, yeah, it was getting a, a little scary there for a minute. So yeah, it was, it was getting a little scary. They were making some veiled threats talking about having knives and I was um, walking as fast as I could, but, and you're lug- lagging behind. And I'm like, John, just pick up the backpack. You're like, I can't, it's heavy. And I'm like, give me the backpack. And so I <laughs> held it to my chest and ran down the sidewalk. And eventually we delete, um, lose them and we ended up having a really good time on the rest of the trip. But it, it definitely had a bad beginning. Yeah, yeah. It was all uphill from there for sure. But uh, yeah, definitely a life-changing experience in many ways. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely said from now on, I'm planning trips, um, booking places <laughs> yes. ahead of time, uh, 
making those contacts, keeping contact with those people. Yes. Yes, indeed. Very good. Uh, I, I wanted to bring up something totally off topic here, but uh, something recent that uh, your wife did for you for your birthday, which I think is one of the coolest birthday gifts of all time. The, the painting of you, uh, which is a remake of the Goodfellas painting with the two dogs. One dog's going one way, one dog's going the other way. And this guy's saying, what do you want from me? Yes. So great, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things. I'm sure many people have watched Goodfellas and not walked away thinking, how funny is that scene? I find that scene funny. You find that scene funny. Oh, yeah. Um, and to the point that we bring it up like way more than you should in life. Yes. And one time we're, we're talking about that very scene. And I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can find anything on the internet now. And so I did a quick search and sure enough, I found that poster and without hesitation, I bought that poster and I put it over my toilet in the bathroom as like a conversation piece. So people go use the bathroom and say, why do you have this odd poster of a couple dogs, one dog going one way, the other dog going the other. And the old guy saying, what do you want from me? And then of course I get the pleasure of telling them, Oh, it's, it's this painting from Goodfellas. Yeah, and they yeah. would just look at me and be like, mm, okay. Yeah. Well, after um, having this poster, <laughs> exactly. So after having this poster up on my bathroom wall for a couple of years, I had plenty of time to contemplate how cool would that be to find some artist in the world that I could commission to transform that Goodfellas painting. And at some point I must've mentioned that to Amelia more than once (laughs) (laughs) knowing me probably a dozen times and she's probably like i got it but i never knew she would actually follow up with it um and uh so yeah her friend suddenly found um that she had a talent for painting and she reached out to her friend and jumped to the end of the story i now have my own personal painting yeah so fantastic man i love it so uh Another thing that you mentioned earlier that I meant to uh, interrupt on, you've been writing a novel since 2001, you said? Yeah. And it, so you are you are still working on it. Like that is a thing. Yeah, that, that is a thing. I work on it piecemeal, little at a time, whenever I get inspired. Um, and if I'm like super busy at work, it definitely gets put on the back burner. Um and it's been slowly evolving over, you know, 20 odd years. And so it's one of those things that if I had just finished it all in, all in one go, it would be a completely different story than what it is now. I keep stretching it out. I keep rewriting it. Again, it goes back to me being a perfectionist. I now see that as a hindrance. I'm sure what I would have written all in one go would have been perfectly fine. Heck, I, I know I read a lot of garbage out there. And I think this got printed. So I need to just sit down one day and just call it done. I doubt I'll ever do that. I feel like some authors, they have one book in them, like Harper Lee to kill a mockingbird. And then there's some authors like Stephen King, where they just crank out two books a year. I'm definitely in the one book camp. Like every time I come up with a, like what I think is a new idea, the next thought is, Oh, that actually works into my novel. 
Yeah. And so yeah. that's why the novel just keeps growing and growing. It's like the never ending book. So it's really just something I do as a hobby. Like I have no intention of ever getting it published. Yeah. Well, that was, I mean, Hey, uh, 20 more years, maybe you'll finish it, man. That's great. <laughs> I'm looking forward yeah. to it. And in the meantime, yeah. uh, you're kind of working on your um, stand-up routine, as you call it, uh, as as you're a park ranger, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it goes back to me being a perfectionist. When visitors come into the visitor center wanting information about the park, I have a little spiel that I do. And I'm able to keep refining it. Like the first time I probably just rambled a lot. And, um, and over time I've really honed it down into like a, a nice concise, um, spiel complete with well-timed jokes, pauses for effect, things like that. And so I, I really do feel like a, a comedian workshopping his material. Yeah. Um, I'll be talking to somebody in a joke, out of nowhere just flies out of my mouth and it gets a good reaction. I'm like, Ooh, I got to remember that. And if it was like another week or two before I got to tell somebody, I'd probably forget it. I would say, what was that joke? But because visitors are constantly coming in one after the other, so I'm able to immediately refine my jokes and my, uh, my pitch to the park. And so, yeah, I like a lot of people find that type of job monotonous telling the same thing a thousand times but I actually love it I, because it gives me an opportunity to do it better. Um, yeah, if we yeah, could do sense. this interview a second time, a third time, <laughs> a fourth time, I guarantee you I could get it better. Mm, um, yes. So, <laughs> Don't get any yes, ideas, yes. man. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but Take no, two. Man. Take three. Exactly. Oh 20 my years God. from now, we're still doing this interview. Jesus. And you're like, it was fine the first time. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, I can get it better. Man, I remember you doing a million takes when we would make movies. And uh, a lot of times I'd be cool with it, but sometimes I'd be like, I knew it was good. But I, I understood. <laughs> I understood from a technical aspect because like you were covering all bases with, uh, yeah. you know, lighting and all that. But still, I'd be like, come oh. on, man. Well, the funniest is in your candle video where that come on man is plain as day on your face. And <laughs> like you were so upset with me that I was doing it a 30th time. And of course, when I went back and watched all that raw footage recently, like take three was pretty good. Yeah. Why did we do 30 takes of it? Oh my I have God. no idea. I have no idea. But oh my goodness, have you seen Bo Burnham's Inside? No, no, I haven't make time for it. It's more than a comedy routine. You know how I give you um, hell for rating your comedy specials on Letterboxd. I'm like, oh, yeah. they're not films. I watched loads of comedy. Um, I never log it in as on, on, I never log it on Letterboxd. I log Bo Burnham's inside because it is a film. Oh, wow. It's not just him doing pieces, you know, songs, jokes. It's about the process of how he made it. Um, and cool. so yeah. at the very beginning, I immediately resonated with it because it's nothing but him moving the camera an inch, moving his face. It's, it's so much more than a comedy special. So it, it, it works on so many different levels. So I highly recommend it. 
Okay, cool. Well, uh, well, sweet. Well, this was great, man. And by the way, you can catch Mark's stand-up routine at Joshua Tree National Park. Uh, you should do that. <laughs> I should do that. I haven't been yet, and uh, I need to make it out there. So, um, dude, man, this was awesome. Thank you so much for doing the interview. Oh, my pleasure. We could probably go on and on just about the movie days even more. Uh, I, I didn't mention stand-up, thank God. Mm, and nor should you now. No, <laughs> we'll just uh, we'll leave it at that. But uh, you're a beautiful man, and uh, keep up the good work, my friend. Likewise, it's always great talking to you. Number you nine. too, man. Talk to you later. Number nine. Bye. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine.